This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It's a joy to be with you today, coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. I want you to meet my morning stars on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel. Please get on over there and everybody like and share. Meet Andre and Ashley from Memphis. Love Memphis. And um, everybody, I hope you're getting ready for a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, It's a tough time in the world today. I'm watching a lot of friends um, exit, exit the world and some others come in. I'd like to dedicate the show today to Joshua Farrakhan. He's one of Minister Farrakhan's sons. He made his transition a couple of days ago, and it's just heartbreaking. Someone I've known for so many years. Wonderful, wonderful spirit. One of the sweetest, most humble human beings you ever wanted to meet. Really just a lovely, lovely, lovely man. And he made his transition, leaves behind a family, and um, a rich legacy of love. And my love to Mr. Louis Farrakhan and his beautiful wife of many decades, Miss Betsy Jean, uh, Sister Khadijah, sending them all so much love today. And everyone, uh, hug your loved ones a little tighter this holiday season. You never know. You never know. You never know. Uh, this just might be your last chance to do so. Or your first real opportunity if you really, really get into your feelings about this. So let's talk about JFK today. Sixty years ago today, 60, he was killed. Why does that still matter? Why does his assassination resonate with us so profoundly? People like me missed it. Right? And yet it's very much a part of our lives. It shapes our lives today. Why was he killed? What was he doing? Who were the forces that opposed him? As you study John Kennedy more and more and more, beyond the glamorous lens of looking at him through the glamorous lens of Camelot, he was a man of peace. He was someone who opposed the military-industrial complex. He wanted to splinter the CIA into a million uh, pieces. And the question is, we see what happened, but... Lee Harvey Oswald, who did it? Why did they do it? Who benefited from his killing? And then, of course, we've got to talk about what's happening in Israel and Gaza. Uh, The release of these hostages, it is imminent. Not all of them, but a good portion of them. What do you think about that? Uh, Of course, the Israeli cabinet debated it, and they, they had to vote on it because they do not, as they say, negotiate with terrorists. But... Tens of thousands of Israelis have been pouring into the streets. They say, we want our loved ones back, and we want them now. So they're responding to political pressure as well, as is Joseph Biden responding to it over here. So we've got a lot to talk about today. What is a war crime? What constitutes that? And, um, and what, is going to be, what is the end game here? Because what was cannot be anymore. That is to say, you're going to have to work out a real deal for peace with Palestinians. You're going to have to give them their land. You're going to have to give them their maritime rights. You're going to have to share this gas that's off their land. 
So let's talk about it today on the Santita Jackson Show. And then I'm going to have a special conversation at 8 o'clock with David Talbot. David Talbot founded Salon.com. Yeah, he did. But he's also written several books that probe the Kennedy assassination. And I wanted to get him up in California uh, and have him talk to me for about 20 minutes or so just about the significance of, uh, of John Kennedy and what his life meant and what the killing of John Kennedy did to all of us. So let's get right to it. I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Before we get the good news, let's get some headlines. Israel and Hamas agreed to a hostage release deal. At least 50 women and children out of an estimated 240 hostages held in the Gaza Strip will be released in exchange for at least a four-day pause in fighting, according to Israel. At first, it was reported by Qatar, which has, uh, which negotiated this deal. Israel will release 150 Palestinian women and children held in prisons and allow more fuel and humanitarian aid into Gaza. Sam Altman will return to his post as OpenAI chief executive. The artificial intelligence company, which makes the chat GPT bot, announced a deal last night. It brought an end to days of chaos since his firing last week. The CEO of cryptocurrency exchange Binance pleaded guilty to federal charges. Mm, what does that, does anyone, is anyone invested in, in that? And there is a mysterious illness that is sickening and killing dogs in several states, everybody, at least five states. Uh, these dogs have contracted these illnesses, fever, cough, lack of appetite, eye and nose discharge, sneezing and difficulty breathing. Please watch out for your pets, everybody. And nearly three quarters of Americans want, of voters, want federal lawmakers to create a strong ethical structure for the Supreme Court. Mm, what do you think about that, everybody? And Baltimore City endorsed Medicare for All. Good for them. In Chicago, we're going to have a high of 46 degrees, partly sunny. Minneapolis, St. Paul, a high of 49 degrees. It will be partly cloudy. In the NFL, over the weekend, the holiday weekend, well, certainly tomorrow, you will have your hands full with football, 49ers versus the Seahawks. The Commanders will be facing off against the Cowboys, the Packers, and the Lions for Thanksgiving Day. In the NHL, tonight Chicago will be playing the Blue Jackets, and and uh, the Bulls will be playing the Thunder, and the 76ers will be facing off against the Timberwolves. And those are the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. Pastor Vicki Johnson, how are you this morning? Well, Santita, I am well. What about you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for asking. So mm-hmm. talk to me. How can we worship with you? Because you have not one but two pulpits. <laughs> well, you can worship with me today at Lebanon Lutheran as we have our pre-Thanksgiving service at 7 o'clock p.m., one thirty one hundred South on Manistee. But you can worship each Sunday at Lebanon at 9 a.m. or at St. Thomas Lutheran at 11.30 a.m. for an hour of power at 80th and Jeffrey Boulevard. Well, good morning, Santita, and good morning to all of your morning stars and friends. There is good news. What a difference a couple of years makes. On this, the eve of Thanksgiving, 
Many of those listening are preparing for a day of abundance shared with family and friends. Turkey and dressing, ham, macaroni and cheese, greens, string bean casseroles, potato salad, cranberries, pound cake, sweet potato pies, and for some, pumpkin pie. Some who are gathering in intimacy, still being cautious, and then others are broadening their circles. But as we do this, of course, we want to do it under the guidelines of Dr. Shanina for a safe and joyous holiday. At this time of Thanksgiving, let us remember that Thanksgiving is a compound word. Yes, we should have thanks to the Creator for abundance. Yes, we should have thanks to God for the air that we breathe, for the sun that is shining, for the water that we drink, and for everything that we are experiencing, all of the good around us. But what about the other word? Giving. What can you give? You see, tomorrow, not everyone will be happy and gay. Walter Hawkins reminds us of this in his popular songs. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for me. He says it could have been me outdoors with no food or no clothes or all alone without a friend or just another number with a tragic end. And then he also wrote, be grateful because there's someone else who's worse off than you. Think about it. Giving comparative praise that you are better off than others is not enough. Instead of singing these songs and shouting, we should be giving to make a change. Give. Give of your time. Give of your talents. Give of your treasures to make the world we live in a better place. Yes, to change the world. Connect with community organizations and faith-based institutions so that what you give can go far and wide. Give to the next-door neighbor. Give to a stranger on the street. Give food, give clothes, give companionship. Give a prayer, give a smile. Giving elevates your thanks. So with all of your thanks on tomorrow, be sure to do some giving. If you will do this, and I'm sure that you will, then to me, that's good news. Amen, amen, amen. My mother often says you can't help someone else without helping yourself. Hmm. What did you used to sing? Why not do it today? There you Why go. not do it today? <laughs> you thought I'd forgotten. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Fooled ya! <laughs> yeah, nah. you got me there. 
Yes, yes, yes. Why not? But that is the question. Why not do it today? Why not start right now? Love you so much, Pastor Vicki Johnson. Again, where can we worship with you? Lebanon Lutheran at 13100 South Manistee at 9 a.m. on Sundays and at 7 p.m. tonight. And also at St. Thomas Lutheran, 80th and Jeffrey Boulevard at 1130 a.m. for an hour of power. I love it. I love it. Pastor Vicki Johnson giving you the good news. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your beautiful family, Pastor Johnson. And happy Thanksgiving to you, Santita. Sending you so much love today. Hey, Dr. Shanina Knighton. Oh, well, now you know what? She just called your name, Dr. Knighton. We have a lot to look forward to. Everyone's excited about getting together. Some of us are not so excited, but, you know, that's another story. But, you know, we are going to be getting together. This is a season for us to come together. Uh, and, but we can do it safely, and we can still have fun. How, though? Do we all have to, do we have to wear masks? Would you recommend that? Um, how do you serve the food at the table? Oh, oh. Tell me, yes, what a, do we do? Well, that's the thing, Santina. I think um, we knew we would not be able to be bad forever. However, oh. that does still mean that it's important for us to understand that we are in the season of illness. Meaning that there is still respiratory synctovirus for which older adults and babies are still vulnerable to. Um, meaning that they're still vulnerable, you know, to death. Uh, there is influenza that is still going around. Pneumonia is still a thing in terms of being a consequence or side effect of a common cold, RSV, flu, COVID, any of these things, you know, that are respiratory related. And so my thing is, is making sure that the company that you keep as well as yourself is not minimizing um, symptoms of a cold and etiquette, meaning that even if it is a sneeze, there might be a sneeze because of dust elements, making sure that people understand the importance of etiquette. Etiquette meaning, am I covering my nose and my mouth when I sneeze into my elbow and not directly into my hand? It means also, too, that when you're literally serving food, that you're not touching things to your mouth, meaning people will open up a dressing, they'll open up a bag, they'll touch a spoon, but then touch their lips or touch their mouth. Like, I've watched it happen, you know? Not understanding that the saliva that's transferred to those items are still droplets. And if someone is sick, then they literally just created that item to be a medium for transmission of germs. It's also understanding that you may share commonly touched surfaces such as doorknobs. Bathrooms may be closed in. And if that is the case, if someone goes in to go cough, sneeze, maybe let's say blow their nose, use the bathroom, in that closed-in space, someone walking in could then be walking into someone else's droplets. It's not to say that everyone that comes around is going to be ill, but the question is, is do we celebrate one day to end up with two weeks of illness, and in some cases longer because of long COVID if it is COVID? So I'm just going to remind people that if anything, even if you choose not to be masked, 
even if you choose to not screen people, ask yourself, what am I doing that can keep me safe? Am I cleaning my hands as often as possible? Meaning after I shook hands at the event, am I going straight for the the hors d'oeuvres that I'll have to be in touch with my hands to put in my mouth? Or am I shaking my hands and being conscious about cleaning them before I am getting ready to engage with finger foods? If I am embracing with hugs and I am embracing, you know, with love, because, again, this is what the holiday seasons do, am I aware that anything that I touch with my hands at that point could then be a point of transmission? Am I aware that me being within close proximity of people being face-to-face, hugging, that them and I are vulnerable to transmission of germs unknowingly. We don't transmit things to people because we want to get them sick. People are craving fellowship. They're craving the social, you know, being. It's important to just ask people, hey, are you well? Are you just getting over something? It's okay to ask those questions, but the most important thing is just not minimizing infection prevention and control practices because none of these illnesses have left. I've said it for some time now. They're going to be with us for some time. Hmm. So what is the what is the recommended protocol for, you know, when you're having relatives over or when you go over to a relative's home? I've got a couple of minutes. Well, for one, if I'm going over to somebody's house, I'm calling and I'm asking, like, hey, everybody's still over there. Nobody just getting over a cold. You know, um, I want to come, but I want to make sure that I'm well. It's also hmm. understanding if you're not well, to say you're not well. It's okay that while somebody will request a fellowship and they will want to celebrate, they're going to respect the fact that literally you're trying to keep them well even more. So being able to communicate that is going to be very important. The other piece about that is, is on top of communicating that it's also too saying, do I have protocols set up? So if I only have one bathroom set up in my home, but I know that I'm expecting 50 people over, and that's the get, let's say the guest bathroom that they all use. Am I or do I have someone that's designated to go in and clean that bathroom, you know, let's say maybe once per hour or, you know, even if it's once every couple of hours just to ensure that things are getting clean opposed to an accumulation and stacking up of germs that would occur. Um, open circulation in the home, if there are going to be a lot of people in a closed-in space, am I opening up a window or making sure that there is adequate airflow so everyone is not just packed in the same place and exchanging the same air? Clean air exchange is very important when you are gathering. If you are gathering also the food, is the food set out on the table, and if it is, is everyone standing over the food and praying and giving thanks? Or is everyone backed away from the food and giving thanks so people are not spewing droplets down onto the food when they say amen or the food or speaking to each other in general? If it is in a buffet format and let's say there's an assembly line, does the food, is it at higher than high, uh, waist high or is it lower than waist high? And are there servers, or are you, again, going to be hovering over the food and talking through it? 
These are all things that are important. But even still, while people are trying to figure that out, Santita, make sure that you have hand sanitizer throughout. So that way, if it is near the dessert, people will know to use it. If it's near the food, right before they get their food, they'll know to use it. Just make sure that you have hand sanitizing materials throughout. Make sure that you're reminding people not to hover over the food and remind people that if they are ill, to stay home and be thankful enough to them for letting you know that, that you can pack them a plate and send it their way or give it to them at a later date. You heard it, everybody. <laughs> you, you know, let's be healthy. Let's be healthy. Because I'm going to tell you, when I am feeling some kind of way, that's why I told you when I was off the air last week I had COVID. And I let people know I had it. You know, and then when I tested negative, I let folks know that, too. Just, I just want you to know. And there it is. That's all we need to do. Just let people know. Don't feel some kind of way because everybody can get anything. Just take care of yourselves. Dr. Shanina Knighton, I understand you're going to be going away lecturing overseas. I got about 30 seconds. Yes, I will be going to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia to share my research, which is around infection prevention and control, as well as teach about the uses and benefits of artificial intelligence in nursing innovation. We are so proud of you and know that we will be with you and our prayers are with you as you go over to Saudi Arabia to pass on that, to share that brilliant mind of yours. Dr. Shanina Knighton, wishing you and your beautiful family happy Thanksgiving. Let's talk about JFK 60. That's the hashtag that's trending right now. 60 years ago today, America changed and so did the world. Why does the JFK assassination Why does it mean so much? Mm, Back in just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals It is some 50 miles of concrete. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. Mm. That, of course, was... 
President Dwight Eisenhower. I'm uh, speaking to the nation the night before President John F. Kennedy was sworn in. It's ironic that he would give that speech, a speech that many people felt spelled the demise of John F. Kennedy. It turns out he was trying to end wars, not start them. Uh, he wanted to find out about nuclear programs, and he was threatening Israel about that. He said, look, you, we don't need any nuclear proliferation. And it, it has been said that this father of two young children, uh, they said they knew, people said they knew that there would be no war if his children, Caroline and John, were in the White House because he had a sensitivity to war, just given the fact that he'd been in war and had been gravely injured in war. I always questioned uh, the efficacy of it and the fruitfulness of it. So let's talk about this with Dr. David Gibbs, brilliant historian and social scientist, Dwight McKee, uh, coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. I think about this uh, a lot. I want you all to call us at 773-763-9278 because... That is one of these historical events that I missed, um, Dr. Gibbs and Dwight McKee. Um, but what I have not missed is the fallout, Dr. Gibbs. It just seems that this is, I feel as if I've been profoundly impacted by it. I asked my mother, what was the most awful thing that happened, you know, in your lifetime? She said, oh, it was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I said, whoa. I mean, as attached as she was to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, she said his death was a result of that, Santita. Everything fell apart after Kennedy was killed. Everything fell apart. And America's not been the same. We don't trust the government the same. It's just, she said, everything changed. And we've never been able to get anything back. Why does this, why does his assassination resonate so profoundly and, and is there a connection between what Eisenhower said and what he was doing? Um, Dr. Gibbs? Do you want me to start off from Peter? Oh, absolutely, oh, yeah. Dr. Gibbs. Uh, yes. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, you know, Kennedy was an interesting figure. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to um, glorify or whitewash him. He certainly he had his weaknesses. He um, uh, often had a very sort of opportunistic political career. He was driven above all by ambition. I often shied away from controversial issues, including McCarthyism, some degree civil rights. Um, and, you know, he began, of course, as sort of a, a war hawk, criticizing Eisenhower implicitly, at least, for not being hawkish enough. Mm-hmm. There was a missile gap, which turned out not to even exist. He's elected partly on the existence of this non-existent missile gap. He was a big fan of covert operations, including things like attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro. Um, and, um, you know, so he was not, um, he was far from a perfect president, let's just put it that way. But he does seem to have had some capacity to sort of grow intellectually and even show some wisdom later on in his career. That was also true of his brother, Bobby Kennedy, I might add, who also had a somewhat similar trajectory. I think towards the end of his short presidency, especially after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he became very alarmed at the danger of nuclear war. And if you look at his uh, American University speech of 1963, there's an extraordinary wisdom in that speech. And he's saying things about the need to end war and and accept negotiation and accept compromise um, that that really um, is very hard to imagine someone like Biden or Trump saying today. 
And, uh, you know, he did have some accomplishments in this respect. He had the partial nuclear test ban treaty. There was a possibility that he had not been assassinated. I, I don't want to say this is a certainty because it's far from a certainty, but it's a possibility. He might have attempted to actually end the Cold War, might have actually achieved that objective had he lived. Um, and, um, you know, one does see a certain change in Kennedy's tone and also his policies by the end. And, you know, it does... I said that, by the way, there's also a increasing conflict, I think, with the military. This has come out in declassified documents. The uniform military was unanimously pushing something called Operation Northwoods, which was to engage in a series of, frankly, uh, demented, uh, deranged schemes to try and provoke a U.S. invasion of Cuba. They proposed things. Uh, this is documented. Uh, they proposed things like Maybe the United States could consider sinking a boatload of Cuban refugees and blending it on Cuba. It could maybe try and shoot, shoot Cuban refugees on U.S. soil and blame it on Cuba as a means of provoking a U.S. invasion, of justifying a U.S. invasion. Kennedy rejected these ideas, repeatedly rejected them, even though the military was pushing very hard for this. Um, and all of this does raise the question of uh, did this have anything to do with his assassination? And um, we may never get the full answer on that, but um, his assassination must be considered extremely suspicious. The circumstances are extremely suspicious. The Warren Commission report um, all smacks of a cover-up. I remember in college, I just sat down one day and read an abridged version of it. Not the whole thing. Even the abridged version was you know, 800 pages, but I read several hundred pages of it. And even at the time, I remember thinking it didn't make any sense. There were things in it. That, that, that clearly made no sense, that they just mentioned in passing that the U.S. Marine Corps had tested Oswald in the Russian language and just mentioned that without considering the fact that that must have meant he was being primed for intelligence work. Um, there were all sorts of very strange things in Oswald's life that were noted in the Warren Commission report that were never explored, again, raising questions of this must have been a cover-up. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is this could have been a major turning point in U.S. and world history, the assassination of Kennedy. It could have been uh, something that um, the, the history could have been very, very different in terms of the Cold War, especially had Kennedy lived. How so? Well, again, I said, I, 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 as noted, I think that there's a real possibility he was moving towards ending the Cold War um, and his presidency, or at least greatly reducing the intensity of conflict. It's very possible there are indications of this, that he was considering removing U.S. forces from, from Vietnam, of not escalating. That's, a, that's, that's, I think, a likelihood, I would say. Um, now, again, that's a reversal of his previous policy, because under his presidency, the number of U.S. advisors in Vietnam increased from 800 to 13,000. But there are indications as well that had he won the 1964 election, he was considering removing all U.S. forces from Vietnam. Um, and um, he had a much greater sophistication about Vietnam than Johnson did, partly because as a young congressman in the early 50s during the war against the French in Vietnam, he actually went to Vietnam. And, um, you know, initially he was getting these briefings from the French about every, everything's going great, we're fighting communism, we're winning, and he didn't believe it. And he took, uh, he took off his suit and just wore regular clothes, didn't pretend to be a congressman anymore, and, and walked around talk to, um, you know, uh, people in the street and just ask them. I, I believe he didn't speak Vietnamese, but he spoke French. And uh, he spoke to ordinary people and asked them what's going on here. 
And they gave them the real story that, you know, the communist Vietnam forces had a lot of support among the people. And um, so I think that, uh, you know, based upon all of those considerations, there's a real possibility he would have withdrawn from Vietnam. And indeed, I think there's a possibility he could have ended the Cold War altogether. We're talking with Dr. David Gibbs about the JFK assassination, why it matters, why it matters. And as uh, I've seen the film JFK countless times, and Donald Sutherland's character, the intelligence operative who approached Jim Garrison and said, hey, you're closer to the truth than anyone has been. Please don't stop. But there's so much light on you. That's the only reason you haven't been eliminated. I said, wow. And, um, oh. Dwight McKee, why does his death matter? And 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 just the all the narrative around it, just given your civil rights background, um, because you know people coming out of the the modern civil rights movement saw uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, for the person and uh, for the institution that he really was, even when he was one of the most popular figures in America. Dwight. Well, I want to kind of arrest the myth that the assassination of, of uh, JFK is what traumatized the country. It did at one level because we had learned the mass market propaganda of America and appropriate, you know, everything from cultures to land. And then to glorify that and to put a flag around it and turn it into this mythology of what the new America was coming out of World War II. Uh, But when Kennedy got assassinated, it put a wrench in that. But then what happened, what really began to traumatize the country, St. Tita, was once he became assassinated, and Malcolm said the chickens have come home to roost, and people tried to explore what that meant, that two days, three days later, Jack Ruby assassinated Oswald on national television. And you looked at that and say, wait a minute, this is the assassin and the witness to the assassination, and now he's dead. And then Marilyn Monroe OD'd, and then Dorothy Kilgallen OD'd. And then, and then uh, Sam Giacconi, who was a gangster who was associated with them, ended up killing himself. And this preponderance of death and murder and, and suicide with people who was close to this assassination Begin. That's what began to traumatize the nation. And guys like Mark Lane and Dick Gregory said something is rotten in Denmark. And then so they began to assemble the facts that were so contrary to the facts that the Warren Commission had assembled. People began to see the real contradiction, the real lies, the real the real cover up, and the preponderance of that began to really traumatize people who had never thought their their government could operate like that. Then they began to look for motives. As in, why, who would kill this guy, and why would they kill them? And a lot of the arrows start pointing toward our own government and the CIA 
and the military-industrial complex. And they began to put two and two together, and they took Eisenhower's speech about that military-industrial complex, and they watched how uh, Kennedy seemed to have been committed to disassembling that complex. And voila, it began to look very, 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 very much like our own government had participated in that assassination. Well, you know, we're 60 years out, um, and more and more is coming out about the assassination. Of course, Dr. Gibbs and Dwight McKee, you know, we've had on this show several times, Abe Bolden, the first black Secret Service agent to serve at the White House. Um, and since since before Kennedy was killed, he said, this guy is not being protected properly. There are too many people who I who I'm surrounded by who can't stand him. Um, and he was put in jail and, you know, and was really maligned. And he has been trying to, for almost 60 years, to get his good name, to have that restored for his family. So, I mean, help me to understand, Dr. Gibbs, why he was so threatening Dr. Gibbs? Yes, I'm back, yes. Okay. Why was he so threatening? I mean, what was he doing that that Eisenhower didn't do, that Truman didn't do, that Roosevelt didn't do? Um, I mean, with respect to Kennedy, um, well, again, there were, the, um, there were specific things, notably the nuclear, the partial nuclear test ban treaty uh, was something that, that hadn't been done before. Um I think more it was less what he actually did concretely and more, I think, what he was planning to do and what he was saying he was planning to do. And I think especially uh, you had uh, indications uh, privately that he was considering removing American forces from Vietnam. That was under consideration. Again, we don't know for certain what he would have done because obviously that was uh, short-circuited by the assassination. But there are indications privately that that was something he was, was open to and was considering, or was leaning towards. Uh, secondly, there was the American University speech, which everybody heard. That was a public event, a major public event. It's often seen as a turning point in his presidency just before, just a few months before his assassination, in terms of uh, this was a real tor- turn towards negotiation and coexistence with the Soviet Union rather than conflict. And again, what he was really motivated by was a real fear of nuclear war and the fact that the United States and the world had come very close to nuclear war at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was shook up by that. There's no doubt about it. And so I think that um, the general change in tone, uh, combined with some concrete evidence that he was thinking of drawing American forces into Vietnam. And finally, I should add the fact that he was going to block any invasion of Cuba, which the military was determined to do. absolutely determined to do, I think these combination of factors uh, may have made, elicited a lot of suspicion um, in the military-industrial complex as well as the intelligence services. He was regarded as unreliable. And, um, you know, again, in light of the assassination, that, that would seem like that was a motive, uh, combined with the fact that Johnson would likely have been more pliable. Johnson did not have much foreign policy experience. And had a uh, more of a kind of um, 
um, a bullying personality, let's put it that way. He was certainly known for that. Um, and he was thought to be somebody who was much more likely to be reliable in the Cold War. And he turned out to be reliable with um, disastrous consequences in Vietnam. <clears throat> Dwight McKee, uh, how do you think, how did he impact, I mean, you, you were how old when this happened? I was in sixth grade. Did, was there a sense of despair after his assassination? I mean, what was the feeling? Uh, well, the feeling, young people really, really liked him. And because when we were kids, they put the rumor out that Nixon was going to make us go to school for six days a week. And so he had become our enemy, our natural enemy. <laughs> and uh, okay. uh, Kennedy was coming to the rescue. And we identified, you know, with him and his family and what he had done for Dr. King when Dr. King went to jail. And he seemed much more sensitive to black America and much more affable. You know, he was a charismatic young guy with a big family. And so we could relate to him, you know, uh, at a kind of a different level than we could most politicians. Um, but as Dr. Gibbs came said that uh, as we watched his evolution and saw how he, they were trying to manipulate him, and he took a position that the CIA would not be able to manipulate him into going into Cuba and decided to fire the Dulles brothers, who uh, was running the CIA in the State Department, and had also... Uh, began to double back on his position in Vietnam, uh, we start seeing kind of the handwriting on the wall. That, and then the other thing you start talking about is auditing and maybe this, to dismantle the Federal Reserve. And so he began to touch some, some, some nerves that no other president had touched before. And he seemed, at some levels, also committed to civil rights and equity for black people and or people of you know of color. And we knew that was not playing well in the South. And he had you know in Texas, it was not playing well at all. And so um, I, that's why I say the preponderance of what we were kind of looking at, even though we didn't completely understand it then as we begin to grow and begin to assemble the pieces and start seeing some overlap and some continuity, then we became highly suspect that this may have been an inside job in the America of beautiful that we were propagandized about may not exist the way we understand it to exist. And we begin to see a shadow government and then, you know, when Johnson put together the Warren Commission, uh, it was suspect because we didn't quite understand, even at my age, and the little I understood about international politics, how you could have guys like Alan Dulles on that commission who had, uh, we, we understood from Malcolm, or one of the chief engineers, in international revolution, and Kennedy, we, had, we knew that he and Kennedy were at odds, and yet Johnson had put him on that, that, that commission. 
And so, you know, as you grew and you heard these guys like Skolnick and these guys like, like, like Mark Lane and these guys like Dick Gregory, as they began to try to put the pieces together for us, it became very enlightening and you could, you know, as you grew and evolved, could begin to come to your own conclusions and assemble these pieces on your own. And this was before they killed Mega and before they killed uh, Dr. King and before they killed John, John Kennedy. Uh, we began to kind of see the contradictions and the inconsistencies of that grassy knoll and that 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 uh, Oswald get shooting these get these magic bullets and taking them out. I mean, even I remember even at at, at six at a, in sixth grade, I was asking the question: How did Oswald get a job there, and how did he know that was going to be the route of the parade? And who, you know, who set that up? How did that work? How did he have such a great shot? Vantage point. Even that you seems know, strange to me. And why did the lead agent wave the two agents who were supposed to be flanking he and his wife? Why did he wave them off the car on the tarmac at Love Field? Boy, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> this case gets so deep, and it's really changed who we are and how we are. Let's talk about matters of war and peace. Perfect segue to that. With legal Q&A with CK, Dr. David Gibbs, Dwight McKee. What about this hostage deal? And why did it have to be debated in the Israeli cabinet? And what's the way forward? Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Meet my morning stars on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. That's what it's going to be tomorrow. Hope you're ready. Hope you're ready. Hope your chicken does not taste like wood. I hope it's going to be a great, great, great holiday. After you fight it out, hug it out, everybody. It's going to be a great holiday. I pray for everyone. And um, it's the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John Kennedy. I wonder what that Thanksgiving was like for his family. And remember, he was killed the week of his son's birthday. And his wife had to roll off of that and give give a birthday party as she's preparing for the funeral. God bless Jacqueline Kennedy. Whew! That's how she kept her mind together and raised two decent human beings. I don't know how she did it. Because can you imagine looking over to your left and then you look to your right and your husband's brains are splattered all over your dress and out the back of the car? Whew! It's too much. It's too much. Too much. Uh, but let's talk about this, what's happening in the Middle East. It seems like we're on the verge of something. But maybe, you know, after this pause is over, after they release these hostages, it seems that Israel wants to continue with the war. Why? 
Why can't we just negotiate our way out of this? Wars have political solutions anyway. Let's talk about that with C.K. Hoffler, because we've got a lot to talk about this hostage deal, C.K. We've got to talk about war crimes. There's just so much that's on the table right now. I mean, for the first time, you see Afri- South Africa saying, we are going to take Israel to the ICC. But now you've got a hostage deal. And, and it was announced by the Qataris first, because they negotiated the deal. America was not on the lead, in the lead on this. There's something to be said for that. Got a lot to talk about here on the Santita Jackson Show. Let's get some of these headlines out the way so that we can get on to this topic with legal Q&A with CK. At least Israel and Hamas have signed uh, this hostage release deal. After debating more than six hours, the Israeli cabinet approved of this deal, at least 50 women and children, out of an estimated 240 hostages held in Gaza, will be released in exchange for at least a four-day pause in fighting, according to Israel. Israel will also release 150 Palestinian women and children. They did announce that none of these women and children were accused of murder. Mm, There's something to be said for that. So they were just held, I guess, for ordinary protests. So we will see what's going to happen there. We're going to talk about that shortly. Sam Altman will return to his post as OpenAI chief executive, the artificial intelligence company which makes the chat GPT bot announced the deal last night. It brought to an end days of chaos since Altman's firing last week. The CEO of cryptocurrency exchange Binance pleaded guilty to finance charges, everybody, and it turns out that three-quarters of Americans want more robust or they want some robust ethics guidelines for the U.S. Supreme Court. Will that happen? And who should do it? They said federal lawmakers, not the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court should not police themselves. Baltimore did something that only about 13 other cities have done. They endorsed a Medicare for All program. Indeed, as we look at what's happening in the Middle East, according to the United Nations, 1.7 million Palestinians have been displaced. 930,000 are in U.N. shelters, very insecure there. There's one shower For 700 people, can you imagine, can you imagine, can you imagine? Everybody in Chicago are going to have a high of 46 degrees, partly sunny. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 49 degrees, partly cloudy. In the NFL, you're going to have a good time looking at football tomorrow. The 49ers versus the Seahawks. The Commanders versus the Cowboys. The Packers versus the Lions. In the NHL tonight, Chicago will be facing off against the Blue Jackets. And tonight in the NBA, the Bulls versus the Thunder. And the 76ers will be up in Minnesota with the Timberwolves. And those are the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. We have been looking for financial freedom for you, everybody. You know, the barrier to home ownership for many people beyond credit And Team Hochberg can help you with that by getting you this credit card where you can build your credit, reestablish your credit, or build your credit. But, you know, trying to save 20% down to put down on a home, come on. Most Americans cannot afford to go to the emergency room. So Team Hochberg has come up with something really, really creative, and I want you to call them at 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID, and ask them about it. Instead of having to save 1%, I mean 10%, 20%, 1% down, 1% down for a $200,000 house, that is $2,000 as opposed to 40. Wow. You need to call them and see if you qualify for this program. Or if you're looking to purchase a new home 
With only 1% down, you just might be able to do that. You need to talk to Team Hochberg at 855-56-DAVID. This has been the primary impediment. Many people have said, I cannot save enough money to buy a home. Well, they now have a program that can help all of our listeners to become homeowners if you qualify for it. So they want to help you, your friends, all of the listeners. Everybody tell, uh, tell people about it. Go to uh, Go to Team Hochberg. Call them at 855-56-DAVID. 855-56-DAVID. Or you can go to their website, 56david.com, 56david.com. But I think you should call them and talk to them. I really, really, really do. I think this is a wonderful opportunity for you. And ask them about that charge card that you load up, you pay on it every month, and it raises your credit score. you got to have a credit card, everybody. You've got to establish credit. So they've helped thousands of radio listeners, and they can help you, too. Call them at 855-56-DAVID. 855-56-DAVID, everybody. 855-56-DAVID. Hey, everybody, let's talk with CK. CK, I know you have been monitoring this situation in the, in the Middle East quite closely. Um, what do you think? I mean, because you have worked with African countries. You've worked outside of the country as companies as countries were uh, drawing up their papers for sovereignty as they have been leaving colonialism behind. I mean, so this is not new to you. But what do you make of this hostage deal? I mean, because the Israeli parliament, I mean, not parliament, the, the cabinet had to debate it. That was like you're going to debate getting the hostages while tens of thousands of Israelis are marching in the streets. They're like, look, I don't care what you do. I want my daughter, my son, my husband, my wife, my grandma, my grandpa. I want them home. What's going on, CK? And somebody I can hear something in the background. So you can put yourself on mute if you have to do something else. Okay, CK. Good morning, Santita. Good morning, everyone, and to our magnificent panel. You know, Santita, this is really, in some respects, a good development because anytime you have a ceasefire, whether it's temporary or permanent, it's a good development, especially when there's going to be a hostage exchange. But we have to be very, very careful because what we don't want to see is a ceasefire for four days. Although, again, I applaud it. Anytime there's not going to be exchange of artillery, killing, and all that for four days, three days, two days, one day, it's a good thing. And hopefully it will, it will be the path towards a permanent ceasefire. But um, I, I do think that the ceasefire is as a result of the international community coming together and putting pressure on those that needed pressure to be put on them. Certainly this is a negotiated deal. That's a good thing because any resolution long-term for this conflict has got to be, for this war, has got to be Negotiated. It can't be one side dictating anything. The last time I checked, one party can never dictate any type of resolution. You can dictate a short-term solution, but not a long-term solution, because you can't annihilate a, a, a people. You simply can't. So, so the, this could very well be the path towards something long-term, and that is what the international community is hoping for. The fact that countries such as South Africa... South Africa, and the Organization of African Unity. So it wasn't just South Africa. South Africa said, we're filing these claims. We're filing these charges at the ICC against Israel so long as there is no ceasefire based on what they perceive are war crimes. For a country like South Africa, and we have to understand this, we all know the history of South Africa. 
South Africa operated under the apartheid regime, which was an illegal regime that was toppled in large part, I believe, based on international pressure, mm-hmm. uh, including the efforts of your father, um, Santita, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Randall Robinson, so many human rights leaders, civil rights leaders and activists were played an important role in the release of Nelson Mandela and the toppling ultimately of the apartheid regime. So this, this approach can work, but it's the parties and the players are different this time around. Again, having African leaders taking a very strong position, African leaders have been the victims of the ICC more than I believe any other um, demographic in the world. So they certainly do know how the ICC can work um, at, at convicting people of war crimes, of genocide. So I think that's one fact. Of course, we have the United Nations has taken a very strong position um, asking for a ceasefire. We've got other blocks of Arab countries that are, are in, in solidarity, standing in solidarity together for the first time on this issue in terms of a solution. You also have other superpower nations saying, we're, we're, this, is, this is not going to be acceptable. And so as a result of that, and I do, and there's, there's no question, Joe Biden has been in the middle of this, whether he led the discussion or not. He had to be in the middle of it because of the extraordinary support that we give Israel. So I think this is good, Santita, but a cautionary note. It's not good enough to have a four-day moratorium so that humanitarian relief can come in so they can be the exchange of hostages. And, um, and I, but, I, but I do think it's a good development. Hmm. But you've got a whole lot of people who want to weigh in. You've got Bryce Green, you've got uh, Mark Fancher, you've got Dr. Gibbs, you've got Dwight McKee, you've got a whole lot of folks there, so you just have at it, CK. (laughs) I'm leaning back. I want to hear what they got to say. Well, you know, the the one thing that's magnificent, we have an incredible panel of people um, who, who are experts in their own right in different aspects of social justice. And of justice, and have weighed in nationally and internationally on these issues. And I know that we've got Bryce Green from Fair, Fair and Accuracy and Reporting. And I'd love to hear what he has to say about this. I mean, everybody's perspective is important and informs where we should be as Americans on this issue. Right. Right. Well, you know, this hostage deal is certainly a positive development. Any pause in the fighting is a very important thing to have here. Uh, but, you know, the Biden administration has made it clear that they're not calling for any sort of ceasefire. They want and encourage the fighting to continue later. Uh, the only reason that they uh, pushed for this this humanitarian pause is the line that they're going with. Well, it's for, it's for public relations reasons. Israel has been indiscriminately bombing the Gaza Strip, including uh, to the point where they're killing and uh, burying under rubble some of the hostages that they purport to want to return. And in Israel, this isn't really going over well with some of the families of the hostages. Uh, Israel has been racked with protest against the Netanyahu government, in part led by some of the families of these hostages, who feel correctly that Netanyahu has no interest in getting these hostages back. Uh, despite all these kidnap posters you see around America, and despite all the, you know, the rhetoric that's used on the, you know, by Israeli spokespeople in the media, 
Israel doesn't care about these hostages. And in fact, if you look back to 10-7, Israel, uh, all, they certainly, uh, according to reports in the Israeli press, they were responsible for many, many deaths of their own people in terms of indiscriminate fire, crossfire, shelling, tank attacks, and Apache helicopter fire. Uh, a lot of that was aimed at some of the people that they considered to be hostages. And if we also look at uh, the hostage deal itself, uh, we it's not reported here in the press, but Hamas has been offering this exact same hostage deal for months, uh, for, for weeks, almost since uh, immediately after the fighting started. Uh, Israel has been the one rejecting it. Uh, Hamas has offered a full return of all hostages for in return of all the hostages that Israel has, of which <laughs> Israel has far more, and that's also not talked about. Uh, Hamas has also offered partial release of hostages in return for partial stopping in the fighting. Israel has rejected that for quite some time. Instead, they claim that they uh, they don't negotiate with terrorists. You know that 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 line from the global war on terror that seems to resonate so much with American audiences. Um, But of course, one of the major things that we have to acknowledge is that the Biden administration they seem not to care about it. In fact, Politico reported recently that one of the Biden administration's major concerns about having a humanitarian pause was that more journalists could get into the Gaza Strip and document the damage, and that would, of course, harm Israel's image and, by extension, harm America's image. And so while Israel's going around, uh, you know, straight-up murdering journalists around the Gaza Strip, uh, I forget what the final count is, but they've murdered journalists from Al Jazeera, Al Mayadeen, uh, you know, even BBC journalists and freelance reporters and others from Palestinian media outlets, Israel's murdered them indiscriminately and murdered their whole families as well. Uh, so the idea that more journalists being into the strip is a bad thing, I mean, that's that's really the Biden administration's position. So uh, don't forget that while, you know, the, the pause is definitely good, a positive development, it also illuminates some of the propaganda war that we've been experiencing and the timing of it illuminates just how vicious the people perpetrating this war and supporting this war are. You know, there are good people in the White House. There are good people in, uh, you know, in government, the American government, pushing the Biden administration away from its current course. But, I mean, just look, listen to the, what the spokespeople say. You know, they'll, ask, they'll be asked questions like, do you believe that Israel uh, is following international law here? And they'll say, well, it's not our, it's not our, uh, our position that we're going to make a judgment on that, no matter what. Uh, one, of course, it's very clear that Israel's violating international law, but the Biden administration, or at least the higher echelons of it, are hell-bent on defending Israel on its brutal campaign. They've killed 13,000 people, and uh, 6,000 of them are children. Uh, you know, I punched the numbers. If we look at the number of children who were killed on 10-7, and we don't know how many of them were killed by uh, Hamas or other militant groups in the, in the Strip. But if we assume that all the children killed on 10-7 were killed by Hamas, well, Israel has killed 19,000% more children than Hamas uh, has killed. 19,000%, 190 times. Uh, is, this, is this even rational? Is this, uh, the, the words can hardly describe the carnage that we're being seeing, uh, that we've been seeing. And, you know, this humanitarian pause might get Biden some, uh, a little bit of positive press. It seems that he's lost the majority of young people on this issue. He's lost the majority of the world on this issue. He's lost the Arab community on this issue. And rightly so. This is a genocidal policy supported by the U.S. And uh, people should be held to account for that.
You know, first of all, um, Bryce, thank you so much for for giving us that perspective, because this is what we do not hear in the press ever. Um, there was reporting today, just to give you an example, even on MSNBC, they were talking about this, you know, temporary sea star, which again is is a good humanitarian gesture, just a start. But the concern that was expressed in the media was whether what Hamas would be doing, whether Hamas would violate this and take this opportunity to gain an advantage. There was no discussion, no commentary on whether Israel would do the same, whether Israel would take advantage of this. So it's just the reporting that we're hearing, that we're, we're seeing in the U.S. and globally, generally, um, does not really give both, does not at all give both sides of the story and does not accurately report all the things that are happening that are available for journalists to, um, and that I believe journalists are reporting on or gathering the information, but it's not coming out in the U.S. media. This is not unusual. This is what we see in this country. But I'd like to call on attorney Mark Stanter. You know, Mark, you talked previously on, on, these, on our shows about the ICC, the structure of the ICC. I'm very familiar with the ICC. Um, you are, too. How important is it in your mind for African nations and other nations throughout the world, but leadership, the South African government, reporting and filing a claim against Israel at the ICC? How important is that? Well, they have done exactly what would be expected and what they should do, all things being equal. If you look at the Rome Statute, which is the, uh, the authorizing treaty for the International Criminal Court, uh, it was almost uh, tailored to this type of a situation. It specifically has jurisdiction over crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide, crimes of aggression. Those are crimes that should the ICC should be dealing with. And in, re, in making a referral of this situation to the International Criminal Court, uh, the African Union and uh, South Africa have done exactly what should be done. However, uh, the practical reality of, of, of this whole situation is that from the time that the ICC was established uh, in the early 2000s, uh, its focus has been, at least in its earliest years, was almost exclusively on these types of serious crimes that were happening in Africa. And it focused on them to the exclusion of uh, these types of crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide that were, were perpetrated by uh, European countries, by, uh, by the United States of America. I know this because I sent a petition to the ICC for what uh, the, the U.S. did uh, in, in, uh, during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and the prosecutors for the ICC have ignored any of these types of crimes that have happened outside of Africa, uh, at least in the earliest years. They've expanded a little bit since then. And uh, so what it means is that we're left to rely upon what you were referring to earlier in your comments, and that is the international pressure. Historically, uh, international law has never had the benefit of what domestic law has, where you have police officers who can go place people under arrest. And it was hoped that the ICC would be that type of a mechanism for enforcing international law. But uh, historically and traditionally, you did have to rely upon international pressure. And in the same way that apartheid South Africa was isolated, was marginalized, 
was, was made the pariah state that the world hated and eventually that contributed to the possibility for that falling, uh, I think the same thing will have to happen with respect uh, to Zionism uh, and Israel because it's only going to get worse. You know, when you have a ceasefire, or in this case, a pause, or whatever you want to call it, the prospects for a lasting peace very often depend upon the parties seeing a possibility for resolving this in a way that's going to lead to continuing peace. I am almost certain, if not 100% certain, that Israel has done the calculation, and they recognize what many of us have recognized for a long time, And that is that you cannot maintain a condition of oppression forever. That the people who are oppressed will continue to fight and resist until they overcome the oppressor. And they know that the Palestinians will continue to do this. And I think tragically, disturbingly, I think that Israel has concluded that the only way that they can end this is by committing genocide against the Palestinian people, completely eliminating that entire population or driving them away so that they can have peace. And that... We cannot stand for. CK, we'll be right back. We've got to hear from a whole host of other people to talk about this. What about this deal? Why did it have to be negotiated? Ah. Come on over to the YouTube channel, The Santita Jackson Show. And we're going to be talking with David Talbot, the author of The Devil's Chessboard. Ooh, Dwight, I know you'll love that. He's talking about Alan Dulles and that. Ah. Back in just a moment on The Santita Jackson Show. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody, back to the Santita Jackson Show legal QA with CK. CK has been itching to talk about all these topics from from the legal perspective, because as a lawyer, she's brought she's been brought into countries to help set up constitutions and um, and to broker peace uh, with former colonial powers. She has a tremendous amount of experience, as you can hear. But CK, take it away, because I think Dr. Gibbs and Mark Fancher were making some really interesting points. Uh, Absolutely, just back know, on air. Absolutely, Santita. I think something that that we don't hear a lot of discussion about is the cancel culture. Um, and and what is happening to those um, celebrities and others who are speaking out in favor of a ceasefire? And so, um, you know, Dr. Gibbs, why don't you share what your perspective is on that, and what are your thoughts on that, on what's happening? Um, in terms of cancel culture, this is, um, yeah, the worst, what we're seeing now with regard to, the, you know, what's happening to Susan Sarandon and happening across the board at universities, you know, including in some incidents where I teach at the University of Arizona. Uh, this is really a new era of repression, uh, the worst I've ever seen, actually, on this issue. And, um, you know, it's, it's um, you know, it, it, unfortunately, I have to say, I mean, the, the disrespect for debate and open discussion is true on both sides of the ideological spectrum. It's true on the left as well. But it's very clear the right now it is very much uh, engaging in this kind of oppression, uh, far more so than ever existed before, at least in my lifetime. And so, yeah, it does. I, I, you know, obviously, I wasn't around in the early 1950s with Joseph McCarthy. I suspect it's, it's very similar to that we're seeing right now 
in terms of the degree of retribution against people who speak out on this obviously important issue. And, um, you know, the, the, the range of allowable discussion here is, 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 is incredibly narrow. And if you deviate from that prescribed range, uh, you're immediately denounced and shut down. And there's something about this that is deeply disturbing in a democratic or a country that purports to be democratic, such as we, such as ours. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's not only is it an offense against people who are themselves canceled, but it's an offense against the public because not only do people have the right to speak, they have the right to hear. People have the right to hear a range of perspectives. And that's not happening right now. That's being shut down through coercion. Hmm. CK? Well, you know, certainly, um, and, and, and I think it's important for people to be aware of this because I don't think there's a lot of, there is not a lot of discussion about this. You know, before the break, um, I, I was just eager to hear from Dr. Daddy's uncle, Dwight McHugh, who's just an incredible visionary social scientist. And, um, and, and what his perspective is on this war, where we are with this temporary ceasefire. Dwight McKeith? Well, two things. One is, Dr. Gibbs, no, this is a little different than McCarthy. Because McCarthy, they control some of the levels of government. They didn't control the levels of popular media. And the people he announced who were involved in cancel culture control the mechanism of popular media today. And so the momentum of somewhere around South Africa where guys like Stevie Benzant could organize boycotts against mm-hmm. South Africa and put out, you know, songs like uh, Ain't Gonna Do Sun City. Yeah. Ain't Gonna Do Sun City. Now it's that crowd who's involved, that controls the the media, who is on the Israeli side. And so it is is much more of a intense, uh, broad-based system, systematic, uh, counter 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 cultural experience that you have to deal with if you rise up against anything they have to say. I my feelings about the hostages being released is a little different. Is I really have a fear that once they release these hostages, what happens is it takes Netanyahu off of the point for you know, killing the hostages that they've already killed in their quest to uh, eradicate Hamas. And once these some of these kids are taken out of hostage land, it gives them a carte blanche in four days to uh, impose ethnic cleansing mm-hmm. and a pretext for genocide, which is why I really believe that they're going with this. I don't think they want a ceasefire. I don't think they want uh, a two-state solution. I don't think they want peace in the Middle East. I think that they want a a, uh, Zionist state. And anybody who is not Zionist or anybody who is not, you know, of that, that, that orientation will have no voice, no vote, no land, no food. That they they're looking to cleanse even the, the the Gaza in order to make room for many of the other you know uh, 
Zionists that they're trying to import into that country, especially those from the Ukraine, who is going to need a place to go after this war is over. So I have a real fear that once they take these kids out, it's going to open a door for major, major ethnic cleansing and major bombing and destruction. I mean, I want the kids to get out. Don't confuse what I'm saying. I, I think it's a good thing that they are getting out. I just think that the only thing right, right now between wholesale slaughter and uh, uh, and some, you know, giveaway is those kids being there, you know, uh, as a cover for the uh, those, those guys from Hamas who have no right to keep the kids, but boy, all hell is going to break loose in four days. Oh my gosh. Mm. Well, you know, that's that's a very, 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 very interesting point. I know that we're all kind of waiting around and seeing what this means, but I think the international pressure has to continue um, to, for there to be a lasting solution on this. Um, Dr. Yuri, Dr. Todd Yuri, from the not just the faith community perspective, because you're a lawyer, you're a leader, but just focusing on the faith community perspective, what what are you seeing and what are you hearing? Well, good morning uh, to you, CK, and to uh, and Tita and my colleagues. Um, from the, it's it's an interesting question about from the faith perspective, right? The the issue of the loss of innocent life is always a huge moral issue. Um, and that's where I think this ceasefire or this pause, whatever you want to call it, there's no direct engagement for a period of time. That's really the definition. It doesn't mean they're not ready to fight. It doesn't mean that they won't reengage. It doesn't mean that one side or the other may not respond or retaliate if they feel that there's been a violation of whatever the terms are. Here's what I think is going on. The When we talk about media, there's... What, what is often called corporate or mainstream media, and then you have the media that gets to the people. Something has changed in terms of the grassroots movements across the world about what's going on. And Netanyahu needed to change the narrative. The narrative is this. Let's just kind of think about the terms. For every one hostage that's released by Hamas, three have to be released by Israel. Um, that math is typically not what you would expect. So there's some reason that uh, Netanyahu got the cabinet to kind of buy into it. But the other piece is, is that if you release 50 over four days, that still leaves more than 200 in custody, uh, being held hostage. Um, and so I don't see that there's going to be uh, a lot of the extreme just yet. I'm, I'm cautious to what Big Brother Dwight just said. But I'm also recognizing that this is more like watching a leaky faucet drip for a little while to see what's going to be the tone and the temperament of not only the parties themselves, but also the response. And I would just suggest that what Israel has to be careful with is that they're not just directing their attention to Hamas. They've got Hezbollah still sitting there watching. And so if there is this shift, if there is this uh, this 
ongoing conflict if we see more of the kinds of uh, what uh, Israel calls targeted hits on hospitals and refugee camps. Uh, there's a lot of conversation going off to the side. We've got we've got this this settlement agreement, this this pause agreement, uh, but there's still this uh, warning that's going to Iran and Iran backed uh, Hezbollah supposedly uh, to try to keep them on the sideline. That's not a given, uh, and so depending on what happens here, uh, it's going to be a big issue. Here's where I think the faith community has to kind of focus in on it. When you go back and you look at where the ICC actually has jurisdiction and the ability to uh, make a binding finding uh, of the 125 countries that signed the Rome Statute. One of the three major players in this whole conversation is the only signatory of the three, and that's the Palestinian state. The United States and Israel did not sign. They have not signed to date. And so there's always been this thumbing of the nose to the international community to hold up international standards. The notion of human rights writ large has always been this sliding scale around whatever the self-interests are, both the United States and Israel. They're, they're that close because their attitudes uh, toward international accountability being part of the international community uh, is really one of, it depends on what kind of mood they're in. And so when we start talking about the moral compass, the, the faith perspective, is really we have to raise the question, is the U.S. going to be part of the international community or not? And what's going to be the response of the people to make sure that, that the accountability that we expect of others we apply to ourselves? How can you point out the speck in your neighbor's eye and you miss the diving board that's hanging out of your own? It is, the, it is the model of hypocrisy that we're seeing that the U.S. would try to mediate or help inspire this agreement, much like the United States was kind of the mediator at the, uh, at the Berlin Conference that carved up the continent of Africa. But let's be real clear that uh, when, when faith leaders come, they come with an eye not only to uh, the moral call, but they're also very clear on the historical realities, and I'm not sure uh, as Big Brother Dwight, I have a bit of suspicion. Four days gets them started, uh, but there's more to come, and I don't think that this is going to be an end to any conflict anytime soon. You're going to see other players get in before this thing is resolved. Hmm. CK, well, I, I hate yes, to jump in this way, but you know what? We just got uh, just uh, David Talbot just reached out mm-hmm. to me. David Talbot it was the founder of Salon, Salon.com. Um, and he wrote The Devil's Chessboard, one of Dwight's favorite topics in books, which talks about Alan Dulles and the CIA. Uh, and he wrote Brothers, uh, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. And on the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, we were talking about this earlier. He just He's out in California, and he just reached out and, CK, begging your pardon, could we just bring him on so that he could? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I just wanted to also incorporate, if, if Daryl Jones is on at some point, incorporate his comments in his perspective. Oh, no, we can do that right quick before we bring on Mr. Talbot. Okay. Daryl, are you on? Daryl? Okay. Well, why don't we have a full house? And, have we missed anyone? And, and, no, but you know what? I did want to give Dr. Gibbs an opportunity to elaborate. I think I, I had asked him a specific question, but I wanted to make sure, Dr. Gibbs, that you, we've covered your perspective on the seat on and on where we are right now 
in this war. Dr. Gibbs, you there? Uh, yes, I'm here. I'm sorry I was on mute. Um, oh, no what is necessary at this point is not a military solution or a temporary pause, but a political solution. That is what has always been lacking since the 67 war when Israel conquered the um, Gaza Strip in the West Bank and um, you know, occupied the West Bank and effectively occupied, uh, continued to occupy the Gaza Strip. What, what's needed is a two-state solution, which has been proposed again and again and again, and Israel has always blocked. Um, well, not always, I, I, I should say. That they probably were open to it under Yitzhak Rabin, but uh, Netanyahu certainly has been a diehard opponent of any kind of two-state solution, any kind of Palestinian sovereignty in any really meaningful sense. Um, and um, what's necessary here is a, is a political solution that will give the Palestinians full authority and Israel's occupation or effective occupation of both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Uh, that really is the, the crying need right now. And that has effectively been off the agenda. I mean, the U.S. officially is committed to a two-state solution in terms of rhetoric. At least there's some rhetoric given to that. But the U.S. has never pressured Israel, at least not recently, uh, to actually seek a two-state solution. The U.S., again, there's a pretense the U.S. doesn't have leverage over Netanyahu, and that's simply untrue. The U.S. gives these enormous subsidies to Israel and backstops Israel with aircraft carrier task forces and the like. And the U.S. doesn't have to do that. The United States can demand... Uh, well, first of all, the U.S. could just cut off the aid, which I think would be a great idea, uh, and use the money for something else, like maybe, um, I don't know, eradicating disease in, 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 uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, improving living standards in the United States. Or short of that, they could insist that as a condition for Israel getting aid, Israel has to move towards a two-state solution in a concrete direction and has to begin by ending this war. So I think that... Um, you know, it's, it's not only necessary to seek ceasefire and enter the war, that's the immediate objective, but the main thing is to seek a political solution to Palestinian sovereignty and to basically have the United States force that on the Israeli government if that's necessary. Mm. Well, may, may I very, very okay, respectfully, I'm sure, course, respectfully suggest a, a, an alternate view. And I, I actually think the two-state idea is a dead idea. I think Zionism is, is irreconcilable uh, with justice and human rights and all of the things that we want to see. I, I, I do think that, there is, that, that God is going to play a role in this, but I think that what will happen is that, uh, it, and we're already beginning to see it, there's going to be an implosion uh, within Israeli society. I think that more and more, uh, you know, if the faith community rises up and, and, and helps to point out the contradictions of the Zionist program, with, with Judaism, uh, with the most basic tenets of morality, even for those who are religious, that eventually uh, the, the, the Jewish people in Israel and around the world will begin to see the contradictions and will begin to see a revolution uh, within the, the Zionist state, uh, an effort to overthrow it from within. And I think that ultimately uh, what has to happen in Palestine is a state that doesn't uh, depend upon one's religious affiliation. Uh, it's a one-person, one-vote type of a unified state uh, where people come together based on a shared interest in advancing humanity. You mean like they had before? <laughs> okay. I'm just 
pointing that out. Because <laughs> you know, we have seen that before 1947. But you know what? We are CK, you know, and I w- I'd love to introduce you to David Tal, but I think you met him before on the Keep Up Alive show. One of the world's foremost journalists, and we were so excited to get him. And um, Dwight and Dr. Gibbs and Mark Fancher and Bryce Green and uh, Mark Fancher, I don't know who else we still have. Uh, this gentleman, he's the founder of Salon.com, brilliant journalist, brilliant activist, and two of my favorite books, very dense. But boy, you know, I have to tell you, after I read Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, I cried. Um, you know, because I just thought about, you know, Joseph Kennedy telling his son, John, as you go into the White House, you need to take your brother with you. I know these jokers. I know these people. You cannot go in there alone. And just thinking of all that happened beyond that. Um, and then the devil's chessboard, which is something Dwight McKee is very interested in because he's always talking about Alan Dulles and um, and really the tremendous damage he has done to the country. So, C.K., I wanted to bring David Talbot on. We got him up real early. He's way out west. But uh, it's the 60th anniversary. Oh, gosh, C.K. And C.K., of course, is chair of Rainbow Push. She is the... Uh, a legal analyst on Court TV. She has her own show on WAOK, the iconic radio station in Atlanta. A brilliant lawyer, tremendous practices that she has. Uh, but it's the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. And this assassination just continues to resonate with us. And this is something Dwight was trying to pull me into it. Sorry, Dwight. I was like, this is my historical memory begins with Dr. King. That, you know, I, you know, and but I feel like it happened to me, Mr. Talbot. I really do. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I get up any hour of the day for your show and for this, uh, <laughs> this anniversary, this tragic anniversary. You know, um, I got a prominent list of people assigned a public statement uh, in 2019, including one of the surgeons who worked on President Kennedy at Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas uh, and, and saw with his own eyes that he was shot. President Kennedy from the front and the rear. So I think it's so important for the American people. And by the way, the latest Gallup poll says that 65% of the American people know that President Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy. Uh, yet the media, the big media in this country, the New York Times, which refused my op-ed after commissioning me to write an op-ed on President Kennedy and then re- rejected the piece and rejected a paid ad uh, that uh, a colleague of mine wrote for them and was going to pay them good money. The New York Times rejected that ad, too, about JFK. So, look, the cover what, what, what were you saying? To- what were you saying in your piece, and what did they have to say? And I've got two minutes, and I'm well, going to bring you on to the other side of the break as well. Sure. I, I said in my piece, my at-bed piece, that the cover-up has gone on too long, and it's finally falling apart. Thank God, uh, because of alternative journalists, because, uh, because of radio shows like yours and podcasts and blogs and documentaries, the, the official version is falling apart. Also, the former Secret Service agent, Paul Landis, his revelation, there was no magic bullet. It was on the back seat uh, the whole time of the presidential limousine. It did not cause seven entry and exit wounds and may and amazingly emerge in pristine condition in the hospital. There was no such bullet. 
So the entire Warren Report, the official version of this crime, was based on a magic bullet. That has now been blown up. So at six years later, the American people, if they want to, can finally find the truth. But the New York Times is still denying that truth. You know, stay right there. CK, um, CK, can you stay with me just a little longer? Because, you know, this is your wheelhouse. Because one bullet, seven entry wounds, CK... CK, CK, CK. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I'll say a little bit later. A little later. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, Cynthia, I want to say that Dr. King, Malcolm X, Bobby Kennedy, JFK, those four assassinations were, uh, I think, really, really transforming in this country in a tragic way. They ruled those people who killed them, those four leaders, at the barrel of a gun. That's 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 what the American people have to know. They took charge of this country at the barrel with the barrel of a gun. And we're going to go on the other side. I know you didn't want to miss that, everybody. Stay right here on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel and spread this far and wide. We've got David Talbot, the founder of Salon. New York Times has been rejecting. They commissioned him to write a piece. They rejected it. He didn't say what they wanted him to say. Couldn't buy an ad. Your money's no good here. Think about that, everybody. Think about this cancel culture. Everybody stay right here on the Santita Jackson Show. God bless you. I pray that you have the most blessed of Thanksgiving holidays. And you know what? Make up with somebody. And really, just you, you just never know this might be your opportunity to get things right with someone you love, whether they're a relation or a friend. Take the opportunity. Take the opportunity, everybody. And if you have some fights at the table, for heaven's sake, do what the Jacksons do. Hug it out at the end. <laughs> we, we have a debate, as CK knows. And Dwight, every holiday we find a topic and, boy, it gets heated. But we hug it out at the end because we know how much we need each other. And um, we all need each other, everybody. That's what the Middle Eastern crisis is showing us. We are one, whether we like it or not. So go on and like it. I love you, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Henry, thank you for a great show. All my people at WCPT and AM 950 Radio, have a beautiful Thanksgiving. God bless you, everybody. Stay right here so you can listen to more of David Talbot.